before we begin, let me take a moment to pray. Father, thanks so much uh, for this morning or this afternoon. I thank you, Father, that we have been able to celebrate you, that we've been able to celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that um, as excited as we are about gifts and family and food, Father, I pray that we would actually uh, be more excited about the fact um, that you came to earth in the form of your son, Jesus, in order to pursue us and to rescue us and to bring us back into a relationship with you. Father, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things today. Amen. So in February of 2021, Sarah Pascucci of Bethpage, New York, got a letter in her mailbox. Now, we're used to getting letters in our mailboxes around Christmas time. Sometimes we feel them to see if there may be cash inside or maybe a gift card. Unfortunately, the letter that Sarah Pascucci received in her mailbox was actually a letter scolding her for still having her Christmas lights up. In fact, the letter read, take your Christmas lights down, it's Valentine's Day. About Bethpage, New York, by the way. Okay, anyway, while the letter, she said, under normal circumstances would have upset her, she said this year it hit her especially hard. She had just lost her father to covid Two weeks earlier, so just two weeks earlier, her dad had passed away. Her father, who had lived with her, would put up the Christmas lights every year immediately after Thanksgiving. Every year he had done that for years. And in the weeks following his death on January 15th, Miss Pascucci just couldn't bring herself to take the decorations down. You could probably imagine. Receiving the letter, she said, was a major blow to her heart. She went on to say that she knew that it wasn't possible for anyone to know what she'd been going through or what had been going on inside of her home over the last couple of weeks. She shared her story in the Long Island Moms Facebook group, and she explained why receiving this letter was particularly painful. In the hopes that the anonymous sender might see her post, she wrote, The family has been preoccupied with funeral arrangements, mortgage and utility payments, and just the grieving process of it all. So yes, we haven't gotten around to taking down his Christmas decorations. Be kind to people because you never know what they are going through. So she posted that on this Facebook page. And within minutes of her sharing this post, dozens of messages flooded Pascucci's Facebook inbox. Neighbors sent her family heartfelt cards and flowers and meals. A GoFundMe page was started in order to cover the mounting mortgage uh, payments and funeral costs. And beyond these private acts of kindness, what struck out or stuck out to Pascucci most, however, is that many neighbors started putting their holiday lights back up so that she wouldn't feel alone. Bethpage residents climbed up into their attics and down into their basements to retrieve the decorations that they'd already stored away for the season. In early February, they redecorated their homes for Christmas. Although the holiday season was long past, twinkling lights and festive ornaments reappeared on the streets of Bethpage in a show of support for a grieving neighbor. Now, any number of different things stand out from this story. It's hard not to feel compassion for Ms. Pascucci. The story is a great reminder of why Jesus condemned judgmentalism in the Sermon on the Mount. None of us knows what someone else might be struggling with at any given moment. I'm also touched by the outpouring of empathy of members of her community who put their Christmas lights back up in a show of solidarity. This is a refreshing message in contrast to the saccharine commercialism of modern-day Christmas observance. But what I want to focus on this afternoon, however, 
is not either of those two things, although we could do that, but rather I want to focus on the theme of light in this story, precisely because it was her lights that created this initial commotion. Now, the concept of hanging Christmas lights seems to have originated in Germany from the research that I had done, that I did. Back in the 17th century, people would attach candles to their Christmas trees with wax or pins. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a definite fire hazard, right? The point of the lights, of course, was to celebrate Jesus as the true light of the world. We see this idea of illumination in John chapter 1, which Maddie read this morning. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but I'm going to read just a couple of verses just to remind you. Again, John writes this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if I were to read all 18 of those verses, you would see that there are any number of different themes that come up. One of the themes is Jesus as the Word, or in Greek, it would be the Logos. Philosophically-minded people usually love thinking about Jesus through this particular lens, To think about a personal creating prime mover is a captivating thought for people who like philosophy. Another theme from these verses is Jesus' divinity. As John tells us, Jesus wasn't just with God, Jesus was God. The idea of the incarnation changed everything. That God would enter into our humanity alongside of us is an amazing show of compassion, amazing show of of solidarity. We could spend a long time on both of those concepts easily, but again, I want to focus on this theme of light. In the 18 verses that Maddie read earlier, there are 14 different references either to light or to vision. So clearly, John is trying to tell his readers something. His message is this, that Jesus' arrival will and should change everything about how we see God, about how we see ourselves, and how we see the world around us. Let's start with Jesus changing how we see God. Who is God? What is God like? The answer, of course, is found in Jesus. In John chapter 3, there's a Jewish religious scholar. This would have been somebody who taught at a graduate school somewhere. His name was Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus under the cover of darkness because he was kind of embarrassed about being interested in Jesus and didn't want to get in trouble. But in that conversation, Jesus reveals something almost awkwardly personal about the God of the universe who sent him. Jesus tells Nicodemus, this professor, he tells him this. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus paints this picture of who God is. Through the arrival of Jesus, we see that God is a loving God who is pursuing us through his Son. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. What goes on inside of you when you think about the fact that the God of the universe loves and pursues you? What happens inside you when you think about the God of the universe, that he loves and pursues you? If God had a wallet and it fell to the ground and you opened it up, your picture would be inside. That's how God feels about you. How does that feel? Throughout the rest of his ministry, Jesus continued to correct people's perception of what God is like. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, 
And he paints another picture of God that is delicately uncomfortable yet again. The story paints a picture of God as an ancient Near Eastern father with these two boys. And what's sad about the story is that neither boy really wants to have a relationship with their father. One boy essentially runs away believing that the father will impede his happiness, and the other stays, but only so he can eventually get his dad's stuff. Now, to Jesus' listeners, the people he was talking to, his audience, both boys deserved to be disowned in that ancient Near Eastern culture. But instead, what we see is that the father welcomes one boy home, the prodigal son, and implores the other to come in to the celebration. Jesus' arrival reveals something to us about who God is. He is a loving Father who pursues us. It's part of what we see in John 1, verses 1 through 18. So we see something about who God is, but we see also something about who we are. Jesus' arrival doesn't just enable us to see God more clearly, but also ourselves. Some of you may remember the sermon from two weeks ago when we looked at the theology that was embedded in the song or carol, O Holy Night. The very first stanza sings this, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Jesus came to redeem humanity because we are created in God's image. And therefore, we are worth immeasurably more than we realize. You, every one of you in here, is created in the image of God and therefore you are more worthy than you even realize. Psalm 8 makes that point clearly in verses 4 and 5. Listen to what these verses say. What is man that you are mindful of him, the psalmist asks, and the son of man that you care for him? Why in the world would you care for men? What's the big deal? Verse 5 says this, yet you have made him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Human beings are created in God's image, and we are crowned with glory and honor. Jesus' arrival reveals something about us, that we are amazing creatures created in the image of our Heavenly Father. Jesus' rescue mission reveals something else about us as well, specifically that something within us is broken and that we need to be fixed, we need to be healed. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is responding to some very religious, self-righteous people who criticized him for spending time with sinners, here's what Jesus said in response. He says this, it says this, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, these people who are criticizing him, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As I mentioned last week, every human being, that is every one of us in this room, every one of us is a mixture of beauty and brokenness a mixture of divinity and depravity. Jesus came to heal our brokenness, and he came to make us fully human. Jesus' arrival reveals both of those things to us. We see God through Jesus, and we see ourselves through him as well. But the final thing we see is that Jesus' arrival also allows us to see the world that we live in as it truly is. Now, many of you are aware, whether you're aware philosophically and intellectually, or if you just have a vague impression, but many of you are aware that over the last 20 years here in America, we've been going through a massive cultural shift. There are lots of Gallup polls that show that there's a sharp um, dip in what people believe, especially in terms of Christianity. 
And though Christianity is thriving in many parts of the world, it's dwindling in America. And that void is actually being filled by a vitriolic tribalism that we see in politics. We see it in late night TV. We see it around family dinner tables. In 1882, philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote a very short little parable called the parable of the madman. In Nietzsche's brief tale, a madman, or so he is thought to be, declares to his neighbors that God is dead. Let me read a short section of this parable. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I'm looking for God, I'm looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there, he excited considerable laughter. In other words, they were laughing at the preposterous idea of looking for God. The madman sprang into their midst, and he pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither it is moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as though through an infinite nothing? Nietzsche, speaking through the madman, understood that without God, there is no meaning. Without Without God, there is no transcendence. There is only imminence. And if that's true, then we human beings are merely hurtling hopelessly through space on some sort of moss-covered rock. Many of you know that C.S. Lewis actually emerged from the hopeless gloom of atheism to become a Christian. In his work, Surprised by Joy, Lewis wrote this of his own conversion. He wrote this, That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which all accept that will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open high the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. In other words, Lewis said, the only way God got me in there is he was dragging me, kicking and screaming, but I couldn't deny any longer that he was who he claimed to be. Maybe there's someone here in this room this afternoon who is exactly where Lewis was so many years ago. Maybe you've been feeling God's pursuit of you. Maybe you too are being dragged into the presence of the one who wants to make you whole, who wants to complete you. Several years after Lewis's conversion in an address to the Oxford Socratic Club in 1944, Lewis made the following point about his faith. He said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. To Lewis, Christianity was the only thing that made sense of the complexities of this world that we're living in. Most of us have experienced excitement 
this Christmas season. It began probably around Thanksgiving for most of us. We've been excited about giving and receiving gifts. We've been excited about gathering with family, either here or afar. Some of us have been excited about eating good food. That would be me. My prayer for you today, however, is that you would experience the excitement of knowing that you are loved and pursued by the God of the universe, that you are worth far more than you realize, and that because of Jesus, you have been given the truth that will indeed set you free. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that through your Son we are able to see. Father, that we're able to to see you as you are. Father, that you are just, but you're also merciful. Father, I thank you that through the arrival of your Son, Jesus, we're allowed to see who we are. Father, that we must be worth a lot to you in order for you to inaugurate this rescue plan. And yet, Father, we're also broken if we needed to be saved And then finally, Father, I pray that we would uh, join with Lewis in realizing that the only thing that enables us to see the world as it truly is, is uh, is when we see it through the lens of you and of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your son. Amen.